Churchy words. We've been talking about churchy words, and I, I know that there's a few of you in here that um, haven't been here in the past few Sundays, so you're probably thinking to yourself, what is this I'm getting into? Well, we're doing this, this sermon series on churchy words because I think churchy words are dangerous. Churchy words are words that are used inside the church by church people, and they, these words have a, a special meaning that only church people know. I've said that this can be dangerous because it creates an us and a them, and that shouldn't be there. That division between the us and the them shouldn't be there. I even mentioned that during communion. There shouldn't be an us and a them when we gather together. Now, I know that there are people that come to worship services and they haven't accepted Christ, but they shouldn't feel like outsiders. They should feel welcome, and, and they, should, they should be allowed to come into the family. It should be clear how to do that, how, how to get right with God. You know, there are churchy words that we use that they have a definition, and we just sort of assume that everybody knows the definition. And we use these words like everybody has the same definition for these words. That's a problem. Because when we use words that we have not defined carefully and precisely, those words can take on all sorts of meanings that do not fit with what the biblical word actually is. We've gone through some of these words. The word fellowship, which really just means what we have in common. The word worship, and I've talked to you about worship is about what we bring, not what we get. Righteousness, that word has taken on so many different churchy meanings, but the word righteousness also means justice and how our personal righteousness should also reflect public or social justice. And then last week we talked about the word forgiveness. And I told you about how forgiveness must be a transaction. It is a transaction between two people. Forgiveness is not something that can just happen inside your heart. It must be a transaction between two people. And if you have hurt someone else, Jesus is a, you know, his, his command to you is to go and to, to reconcile. But also, if you have been hurt by someone else, Jesus' command to us is to go. <laughs> the command's the same. For followers of Christ, the command's the same. Whether you have hurt someone or someone has hurt you, the command is to go. Try with everything you can to make it right and to reconcile the relationship back together. And that, of course, is why forgiveness cannot just happen inside yourself because there's no reconciliation of relationship when that happens. Go back and listen to that sermon if you'd like more about that. The language that Christians use should be biblical, clear, and it should not differentiate between insiders and outsiders. And moreover, we should not assume definitions of words. When we do this, the words become churchy. We need to carefully define our words without assumption. The churchy word we're going to look at today is one of the most widely used. That was Jack, everybody. Thank you, Jack. Obviously, there was a microphone problem. Appreciate it. Where was I? The churchy word we're going to look at today is one of the most widely used words in Christianity. And it's probably a word that is assumed by more than any other word. It's a word that we assume we know. 
It's a word that we assume we don't need to define. And because of that, it's a very dangerous churchy word. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word today, we recognize that we must hear from you. We can't do this on our own strength, and we must listen to your whole counsel, the whole counsel of your word. Holy Spirit, interpret for us. Help us understand. We want to read from your word what you have to say. We don't want to read our own thoughts into it. So God, help us in this endeavor. Amen. Today's churchy word, salvation. A word that we use without definition all the time. We just expect people to know what we mean when we say salvation. Well, as most of you know, I was a youth pastor in this church for 10 years before I became the senior pastor for the last five years. And as a youth pastor, I preached many sermons that were salvation sermons. They were sermons that were meant to confront kids with what salvation is and have those, those teenagers accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Of course, I've preached salvation sermons as a pastor as well, but in youth ministry, there's a special emphasis. Our youth ministry in this church emphasizes salvation. We want students who are not saved to be confronted or to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ and come to salvation. This is a main focus of our church, is it not? We're concerned about children and youth hearing the good news of Jesus and responding in salvation. Now, we want that for adults too, obviously. But the fact of the matter is, on Sunday morning when we gather, by and large, you guys are saved. Right? So if I preach a salvation message every single Sunday, that's going to be odd. Now, I've been to churches where every single Sunday you will hear a salvation message. It's like a record that gets stuck on repeat. And I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing every Sunday morning. It doesn't make sense to me because adult ministry on Sunday morning is not just about the milk, right? It's about the meat and potatoes. And what what that means is I'm not going to preach on a salvation message every single Sunday because I'm going to preach about discipleship. Oh, there's another churchy word. We might get to that one in a couple weeks, okay? But you need to know how to live your life as a Christian, right? But it's important, isn't it, that we don't use the word salvation in a churchy way. So, right now, what I'd like you to do, I've asked you to do this a couple times, turn to the person next to you, And just define for them in your own words what the word salvation means. Go ahead. And now, one more thing. How are you saved? Go ahead. Talk amongst yourselves. How are you saved? All right. 
Now, if, if you really took that little, that little uh, thing we did there seriously, I hope you will recognize that it's not just quite as easy as you thought to just put it into words. That oftentimes we just assume we know the definition of it. Now, I, I have a feeling that many of you were able to give a very competent uh, explanation of salvation even there. I've, I've heard many of you in release time you know, present the gospel, and I know you can do it. So I, I'm not suggesting that you don't. What I'm suggesting is we need to be careful how we define this word and not assume a definition. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to lead us through um, some Scripture. Now, it's going to feel like a lot of Scripture. I'm taking this uh, partially from a book. It's called I Will Build My Church, uh, which is by, it's a Church of God resource, and I, I can show it to you later if you'd like. But uh, this is John V.W. Smith, uh, used to be the dean of the Church of God Seminary. This is just good stuff. I like the way he talks about this, so I wanted to just kind of present it that way. So, I want you to consider the word salvation, and I want you to start earlier than you probably did in your little discussion right there. Salvation. Did you know, you probably did, but you haven't thought about this lately, almost all religions offer a plan of salvation. My guess is you did not start in your discussion of this outside of Christianity. You probably just started with, this is how you do it, this is Jesus. And how... But almost all religions, in fact, I would arguably say all religions offer a plan of salvation. Like, this is what religions do. <laughs> if you think about it, you probably haven't thought about it, but that's what they do. You see, everybody has problems. Everybody. All 7 billion or 8 billion people in the world, and all the people who have ever lived in the history of mankind, we have problems, and everybody is looking for solutions to these problems. Now, what religions do, if you kind of boiled it down, religions offer solutions to these problems. Like, this is what religion does. Now, I know that there's other fields that try to give solutions to problems. Government is one of those. But I'm talking about just religions today. And if you think about religion, and if you can pull yourself away from what we know in Christianity, think about the Eastern religions, like Hinduism and Buddhism and, and Taoism. They, they offer solutions, and they offer a plan of salvation, but they have a different starting point. You see, Eastern religions, they believe that the, the thing that you need a solution to the problem you need a solution to is the problem of suffering. Most of these religions, the Eastern religions, believe that the primary problem that we need to have a solution to is suffering. And, and these religions, they oftentimes they view suffering as caused by like a supernatural force, like a god or a spirit or a demon. And salvation in these Eastern religions... It comes by following a special act that is designed to appease these supernatural forces and to counteract their evil influence. Thus, salvation is found by learning the secret key that the founder of those religions discovered. The key to overcome the problem of suffering. Now, these religions have all kinds of reasons that um, how suffering is caused. 
Sometimes, some of these religions say suffering is caused by human desire. And then the salvation in these religions is offered by overcoming the human desire that causes the suffering. So like Buddhism, you just, you just ignore or try to expunge yourself of anything that would bring pleasure. That's Buddhism's answer to the problem of suffering. The salvation plan of Buddhism is to not care about anything. Then you don't suffer. That's, that's the plan of salvation in Buddhism. Does that sound like a good plan? In America, we don't follow that. We don't usually say, well, I need to get rid of all pleasure. In fact, I think we probably err on the other side of that spectrum. Okay? But other religions, they, other Eastern religions think that, well, suffering is just inevitable. So then the plan of salvation in those religions is that they just need to, to do things in this life that will help them suffer next in the next life. Help them suffer less in the next life. So like Hinduism's plan of salvation is to just live your life doing special things that help you have a better reincarnation. It's all about avoiding suffering. How do you suffer less? Well, you suffer less. You're not going to help the suffering in this life, but you can live in such a way in the suffering in this life so that in your next life you suffer less. That's Hinduism. I mean, if you really boil Buddhism and Hinduism all the way down, that's what you're doing. That's salvation. It's not a whole hopeful stuff, is it? Not a lot of hopeful stuff there. Not a lot of good news. So Christianity, what, 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 when we talk about salvation, what are we talking about? Well, I'll tell you this, you know this as well. Christianity is concerned about suffering. I mean, it, it's, it's not that we ignore suffering. We certainly don't want suffering to take place, but suffering in Christianity is not the primary problem. You see, you cannot, we cannot define salvation without identifying what we're being saved from. One of the problems with the churchy word salvation is oftentimes we talk about salvation and never talk about what we're being saved from. That's, that's one of the reasons it becomes churchy, Okay. So, what is the primary problem that we are trying to overcome in Christianity? Sin. Sin's the problem. Sin's the cause of suffering, oftentimes, right? So, suffering is not the issue, it's the symptom of the issue in Christianity. See that? Now, that's just, I just want to lay that that foundation that <clears throat> our, our approach to salvation is, is fundamentally different than other religions. I wanted to lay that foundation to start with. It's just different. Suffering is a problem, but it's, it's a symptom of the real problem, which is sin. <clears throat> sin is the real problem. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We believe that sin is with us from the beginning. In Christianity, the problem starts before we're born. (laughs) Did you see that? The problem that we are trying to overcome, the problem that we need salvation from happens before we're born, right? Romans 3.23 is another verse we use quite often. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
There is no question to Mark about this. There is no human being that has ever lived that can say, I don't need salvation from sin because I haven't sinned, but, except Jesus. We'll get to that in a bit, right? But s- sin is with us before, I mean, it's like a stain on us before we're even born. And it's, it's something we can't avoid. What is sin? Well, sin, very quickly, is, is, you can define it like this. Making the easy wrong choices rather than the hard right choices. That's one way of defining sin. Sin is also defined as rebellion against God or acts of transgression against God's law. Let me put that in a little bit easier words. It's doing bad stuff, right? And by the way, you know it when it's bad. Like, that's another thing that's hardwired into us. We know the difference between right and wrong. That just is like part of being human. All cultures everywhere have a fundamental knowledge that there's stuff that you do that's right and there's stuff you do that's wrong. Now, atheists will say that's there because of of society. Okay, but even little kids, they come to a knowledge, they come to a point in their life, little kids just do when they know the difference between right and wrong. It just happens automatically. It's hardwired. There's this moment, this, we call it the age of accountability. They know. Sin is the problem. Now, this is important because when we use the word salvation in a churchy way, we oftentimes don't talk about sin. Now, that's crazy, and yet that is like proliferating in the church today. We don't want to talk about sin. You know why? Because it's not in fashion to talk about sin. Is it? Well, we don't want to talk about sin. We can't, we can't talk about sin because someone might get offended, right? Wouldn't want to offend anybody, right? Wouldn't want to offend anybody. So instead of like just telling them why you need salvation from something, we just present Jesus as if you don't need to be saved from something. It's just that Jesus is such a good guy to follow that you should follow him. And we never talk about sin. Think about that. Then Jesus just becomes one of a thousand people you can follow that will make your life better. That will make you suffer less. Did you see that? See, we fall into the same trap that the Eastern religions do at that point because we we present Jesus as just someone who will make your life more comfortable. That's churchy. You think Jesus is concerned about your comfort? I think he loves us and wants to bless us. But when we're talking about this stuff, what the problem is that salvation answers is not to make you more comfortable. It's the problem of sin, which separates you from God, which leads to death. And the kind of death that we're talking about is eternal separation from God in hell. Now, not a lot of fire and brimstone preachers left anymore. Because it's become, like I said, out of fashion. So, you have to talk about sin when you talk about salvation. Don't use the word salvation, church, unless you talk about sin. Because if you're going to present the solution, you got to present the problem. And the problem is not suffering. The problem is not comfort. You just got to get more comfortable. You just got to live a better life. The problem is sin. That's the problem. Jesus is the answer to that. I mean, well, I could go on, but I'm going to move on. What must I do to be saved? Because once you recognize that 
sin is the problem and you're being saved from sin, then the next obvious question is, well, what do you do to be saved, right? That's the next, next obvious one. Well, Acts chapter 16, verse 30, I'm not going to read the whole section, but it's, it's, the, it's the story of Paul and Silas got put in jail and they got beat up and the jailer um, was there and there's a big earthquake and all of, the, all of their chains fall off and Paul and Silas couldn't just leave if they want to. The jailer realizes that, that the earthquake happened and everybody escaped. He pulls his sword out to kill himself and Paul says from inside the jail, don't do it. We're still here. We're still here. And the jailer's like, why didn't you leave? The door's open. And Paul says, because I want to tell you about Jesus. And when the jailer realizes what had just happened, he asked this question. He, brought, he then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, that is a great question. If there was ever a question that was a good question, that's the good question you want to be asking. Because that question right there, that might matter just a whole bunch eternally, right? So, well, I want to tell you something about Jesus. Who did Jesus, you know, when Jesus was born, we like the Christmas story. But you know, the angel said something really important to Mary when, when the angel was telling Mary about all the stuff that's going to happen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Do you know why Jesus has the name Jesus? Because his name says that he's going to save people from their sins. Like, that's his name. Like, his name is, I'm going to save you from your sins. Did, did you get that? Jesus' name. The name Jesus means he's going to save you from your sins. Like, his, like that's it. Yeshua, Joshua, God saves from sin. And the, this is the angel, an angel of the Lord saying, give him the name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Like, th- this, is, this is the whole deal. <laughs> the, the whole idea of salvation cannot be disconnected from the idea of sin. Don't present Jesus without helping people understand that their sin is, is the problem. Old Testament prophecies and the entire New Testament fulfill that statement of purpose. The entire mission of Jesus is to fulfill that statement of purpose right there. That is his name. Like, that's the whole deal. And, you know, let's go back to Acts chapter 16. I want to hear Paul's answer to the jailer's question. Doesn't that make sense? It's super easy. Look at this. Paul's answer. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's it. Just believe. Huh. Simple. Why is this a churchy word if it's so simple? Have you ever seen Christians try to define the word believe? I'm talking about like, if you get a Lutheran together with a Pentecostal, with a Catholic, with a Seventh-day Adventist, with a Church of God person, and just say, why don't you just give a definition for the word believe? (laughs) You will get a whole bunch of different answers. And see, here's the problem, is we talk about salvation as if it's just assumed. Everybody knows what it means. 
Well, it, it's not assumed, and we shouldn't assume it. There's all kinds. Look at, look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. Because I want to tell you three possibilities. See that on the screen. If you have grown up in a different church than the church of God, if you've grown up Catholic, which many of you have, if you've grown up Lutheran, which many of you have, or you name it, there are three main ways that churches today define the how to do salvation. I want to list all three, and then I want to say what we do, okay? So that we can speak truth when we use the word salvation. So the first way that we talk about salvation in the wire church, and there are some churches that really emphasize this first way. It's called the confessional view. Now, confession might sound very Catholic to you, like go to a little booth and you, you confess your sin and the priest tells you to do so many Hail That's a type of confession, but the word confession actually means to, to proclaim or to say, okay? That's what it means. You're saying something. So the confessional view is the idea that you are speaking or saying your belief, all right? So you got a verse like this. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in, in him and he is in God. Okay, so see that acknowledges? So you got to say it. Another verse that we use all the time in our church too, along with that one, is Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See that? You confess. You say it. You say it. Confession is just not confess sin. Confession means you are proclaiming something. So when you go to Catholic confession, you're, you're saying your sin. You're saying it out loud. But that's, that's a very small part of what confession is. Confession is saying it. So for, for this group of the church that really emphasizes confession as their way of salvation, they really make a big deal about saying the words right. Okay? Salvation becomes a reality when one says it right. When one says it right. And so, like, some of these churches make a really big deal about correctly saying it. Many churches would say, um, you know, is there a correct way to, to, to do salvation? Is there a correct way to say it? Some churches, many churches actually would say, yes, there's a correct way to say it. You have to say specific words. You need to say those specific words. And it is believed that, that you have to say all the right words in the right order and that if you really say all the right words in the right order, then you will receive salvation from sin. By the way, we have a special word for saying all the right words the right way in the right order. It's called a creed. A creed is saying all the right words in the right order. If you say all the right words in the right order, you will receive salvation from your sin. That is the confessional view. Okay, the next view. The next view that some churches really emphasize is the sacramental view. The sacramental view. And of course, in this view, baptism really matters. So, there are churches out there that look at, at some of these passages. So, look at Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 38. This is taken from the story of Philip and the Ethiopian, Philip and the eunuch. And Read the story at home, but this part it says, As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, 
Here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Then look at Acts chapter 16, verse 33. By the way, this is a continuation of the story of the Philippian jailer with Paul and Silas. So look, we're back to Acts 16. Look at this. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his family were baptized. Immediately, they were baptized. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. This is Paul recalling his own conversion process. And Paul says, And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So Paul himself, when he remembered his own salvation experience, was told to immediately get baptized. And of course, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the first sermon at the day of Pentecost, Peter says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Okay, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there are churches that emphasize this and they say, see, baptism's required for salvation. In fact, if you're not baptized, you're going to hell. You better get baptized. Can't you read? Look at what Scripture says. Can't you read? It says repent and be baptized. It doesn't say repent and then wait 30 years and then maybe get around to it. Are you, are you new? So Christians that, are, that, that really emphasize this sacramental view of salvation say, you got to be baptized. The key question, is baptism required for salvation? Well, hmm, no. You want to know why? Because the thief on the cross is in paradise. You think he got baptized? Of course not, right? And of course, if you, if you just stop for a second and realize Romans 10.9 that we just read, about being saved, right? Salvation from sin does not mention baptism, does it? Oh, this is getting so rough. And yet there's a third view. But before I get to that third view, can I say something real quick about baptism? Before we just dismiss baptism, I do want you to recognize that the four verses I just read about baptism are in the Bible. And I would like to say this. If you're not baptized... If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are saved from your sin, okay, but you just like haven't gotten around to baptism, are you for real? What are you waiting for? You see, in lots of these churches where baptism is like this super, super big deal and you have to be saved to be baptized, they quote these verses, but then they don't emphasize the immediately part. <laughs> So they say, you need to be baptized to be saved, but you got to go through confirmation first. What are you talking about? Do you see how when humans get involved, it gets all messed up? Okay. Did you notice that it says immediately they jumped in the water? Like if you said to me right now, you said, I need to be baptized right now. I will figure out a way. It's not about the water, is it? It's about your belief and obedience to Christ. Baptism is a public sign that you are saved. 
from your sin. Okay, the third one. The third one. The third view of salvation is the experiential view. Now, that's a fancy word. Experiential just means an experience. Okay? So, in this view, the emphasis is on that when you receive salvation from your sin, you are a new creation. Now, look at John 3.3. This is Nicodemus talking to Jesus. And, of course, John 3.16 isn't very far away in this, is it? In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You know, born again might imply that there's a change. <laughs> Something's different, right? And there's verses that Jesus talks about in Matthew and Luke where he talks about, like, old wine and new wineskins, or an old piece of fabric with a new piece of fabric. There's all this, this talk that Jesus talks about. You're different than you were before. And of course, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is, is a key verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's gone. The new has come. So this idea of salvation from sin is this whole, it, it has to include the idea You're different than you were before. Something's changed. It's a big deal. And it's more than just saying words or getting some water splashed on you. You probably figured out the experiential view of salvation. That's kind of where we emphasize. Kind of figured that out, right? Because with this experiential view of salvation, there are some words that really matter. Words like make a decision. For Jesus. See, when you make a decision for Jesus, things change because you made a decision, right? Uh, th- these words are words like repentance. See, when you make a decision for Jesus, you know what I'm going to do, right? You're walking this way and you repent and walk the other way because you've made a decision, right? Th- this whole idea of asking forgiveness. It's part of this experiential view. Do you have to ask forgiveness of sins to receive salvation? Yes. Why? Because you have to recognize the problem you're being saved from. Did that click in your brain right there? Did that click? If you don't actually recognize the problem you're being saved from, you haven't received salvation. Forgiveness is required. Asking forgiveness is required. Because otherwise you don't recognize the problem. See, otherwise, your salvation might just be, I want to follow you now, Jesus, as my teacher so that my life will be more comfortable. Did you get that? And you've never actually acknowledged your sin, which is the actual problem. So all you've really done is acknowledged the suffering that your sin is causing in your life. Comfortable is not the goal of salvation. Recognizing your sin, turning from it, and living your life for Jesus in a completely different way, now you're getting to it. The only way that happens is if you ask for forgiveness. This is why we ask forgiveness. It's why we talk about repentance. It's why we talk about making a decision for Christ. And let me tell you what, this is why we do release time so we can say this, right? We don't do release time in KFC and youth ministry so that we can say Because we really want you to follow Jesus because that's a better way to live. You'll be more comfortable. You'll suffer less. You'll be more successful. That's what we really want to talk about in the church. 
That's the cancer that has become the American church. That's why I'm calling salvation a churchy word. Salvation is the solution to sin. Now, in this experiential view, it's very relational and it's very personal, isn't it? You're making a personal decision. Now, all of these, this Christian lingo I'm using now, it, it sounds comfortable to you, doesn't it? I'm making a personal decision to repent of my sin and follow Christ. Holy cow, that's a lot of churchy stuff. What if you could just talk to someone who's never been in the church and just say to them, could I tell you what the real problem is? The real problem is sin. The real problem is you want to live your life for yourself instead of living your life for God. That's sin. The real problem is the real problem is that you think the real problem or the real purpose in life is to figure out a way to suffer less. False. Now, I can tell you how you can have a life of meaning and purpose. I can tell you how you can have a life where your suffering has meaning. It's found in Jesus Christ, the one who can forgive your sin, the only one who can forgive your sin and reconcile you to God. But you've got to start by recognizing that you are sinful, that your life has been all-consuming of yourself. Do you see that? You've only gone for yourself. You've only tried to make your life more comfortable and suffer less. You thought that's what the goal was. And by the way, our entire American culture has been reinforcing that's the goal. Suffer less. That's America. Be more comfortable. If you buy a dishwasher, your life will be better. Right? Every, every marketing scheme in the history of commercials is about, here's how you can suffer less. Wear makeup, and people won't think you're... You, I won't go there. But you see, the, the point of all of that is completely missing the mark. Church of God, we have good news to share with the world. Salvation from sin is possible. And it's the answer to the, the, the actual problem is. And now salvation becomes not just a churchy word. And we can't, we've somehow, we just assume all of that stuff about sin. And then we, we, we just kind of get into this whole idea of comfort's the thing. That, that comfort or your own personal freedoms are the thing. We, we some, ooh, did I go, was that, is it too soon? For, okay, let's, let's just move a little bit away from that just for a second. Sin's the problem. Sin's the problem. Jesus is salvation. So what do you do? How do you do this salvation thing? Ah, I am over my time limit. Really, it's, it's not complicated. It involves three things. And those three types, those three main primary things of salvation, you know, the confessional view, the sacramental view, and then the experiential view. May I suggest to you that all three of them are good. We just have to be really careful we don't only talk about one. 
Because think about it. If you believe that Jesus Christ can save you from your sin, you're going to say it. Confessional view. Right? Jesus, I believe you're God. Jesus, I believe that you came to earth and died for my sin. Right? You're going to say that. So I really don't have a problem with the confessional view. The problem I have is when you think that's all you need. Uh, when you, by memory, can get through you know, your confirmation classes so you can get your ticket punched, and now you're good. That's what I have a problem with. Do you see that? If I just say the right words, I'm saved, then I can do whatever I want. Right? That's not going to work. Number two, sacramental view. The thing I have a problem with in that view is somehow if, if baptism is required for salvation, you've just assumed that the water is magical. That the water itself is somehow providing some magical thing that's going to cure you of the sin problem. Right? Baptism doesn't equal salvation. But I will tell you this. If you're not baptized and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, what in the world are you doing? What in the world are you doing? Why are you, is there some confusion about the command of Jesus to repent and be baptized? Is there some confusion about that? We have de-emphasized baptism in our branch of Christianity in response to the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church. That's a mistake. If you're not baptized, hey, Saturday night, I will put you in the lake. Come to family camp, and I will dump you in the water. If you are not baptized, do not wait. In the, I mean, here's a good reason. Let me give you a good reason why you shouldn't be baptized. You are literally nailed to a cross and can't get down. Is that you? Anybody? Anybody? What in the world do you think you're waiting for? What in the world? Come and get baptized at camp. And of course, the experiential... Of course, we're a new creation, if you believe it. And here's the end of it. I'm going to say this as simply as I can. How do, how do you become saved? It starts with a recognition that sin's the problem, okay? Not comfort, not suffering. Sin is the problem. Number one, believe it. Believe that Jesus came to save you from your sin. Believe that he can do it because he died for your sin He can take the punishment that your sin deserves. Believe it. Number two, confess it. Okay? Say it. You you know, Christians are not supposed to be secretive about their faith, right? Christians are like, hey, I'm saved. Um, I'm a believer in Christ. Um, I'll say it. I'll get baptized because Jesus said to get baptized. I'll participate in communion. I'll I'll be part of a faith family because that's what God has asked me to do. Like, confess it. And number three, live it. (laughs) You got to have all these. Believe it, confess it, and live it. Yes, you got to believe that Jesus came to save you from your sin. But if you're not living that way, do you actually believe it? You are saved by faith. You are not saved by the things you do. However, if you truly are saved, you will do good things. Did you see how that works? You're not saved by doing good things. But if you are saved, you'll do good things. Why is that so tricky? (laughs) I I have no idea. 
It gets tricky when you think that it's all about getting your ticket punched and then you're good. Because then you don't need to do good things. Because you're good. Salvation should not be a churchy word. We must define it. We must not assume. And if you're going to volunteer in release time and KFC and youth ministry and Sunday school, you needed to hear this sermon. Okay? Because we need to communicate extremely clearly with the children and youth that we have coming to this church. Do you want to know where it starts? Identify the problem. Show that Jesus is the solution to that problem. And the problem is sin. Jesus is the solution. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for coming to us Give us a solution to the problem that we could not solve on our own. That is good news. We love you, Jesus. May this church always be a church that proclaims this good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to all that we can. In Jesus' name, amen.